Please open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 22. If you're ever in Owensboro, Kentucky, I think it's worth your while to uh, go look at the sassafras tree that grows in downtown Owensboro. It is an amazing tree. Probably 30 years ago, I was preaching in that part of the country, and uh, the pastor took me into Owensboro for some reason. It wasn't to see that tree, but as we drove down the street where that tree was, I I looked out the window, I said, is that a sassafras tree? He said, yes, it is. Let me, let me pull over. So he pulled over and I got out and we got to look at this sassafras tree. Now, I love trees anyway, but even if you don't like trees, you'll be impressed with this tree. It's uh, about 300 years old. Of course, we don't know exactly, but I uh, think that it's about 300 years old. It is, I mean, if you've got a sassafras tree that's one foot in diameter, that's a big tree. It's a big sassafras tree. Uh, But this tree is 23 feet in circumference, which means that it's over 7 feet in diameter. Now, from wingtip to wingtip, my wingspan is about 6 feet 3 inches. And so if you cut that tree off at the base and I lay down on it, there would be about six inches on either side of my fingertips. That's a big, that's a big tree. I have to talk to Sean Godbold about this. I, I would say that there are bigger sycamore trees in Kentucky, but I don't know if there's any other tree bigger than... Do you know of a bigger tree than that in the state of Kentucky? Not off the top of his head. And, man, he's got a lot of information on the top of his head. It's like... When it comes to trees, you ask Sean Godbold, it's like searching Google. And uh, <clears throat> so you just, you, you Google other, other information, you Godbold trees. And uh, so this, this tree is a massive tree. A, uh, the seed of a sassafras tree is about the size of a peppercorn. You can fit six of them on a dime. And here is this tree that is 23 feet in circumference. How tall it is varies. I looked it up on the internet. Probably over 100 feet. It's a big tree. But at one time, you could have held that tree in your hand when it was just a seed. Everything that was going to cause that tree to grow into what is supposed to be the largest sassafras tree in the world was in that little seed, not much bigger than a peppercorn. I think it's about 300 years old, so just for the sake of the mathematically challenged, let's just say that it it started, it was a seed in 1700. So in 1700, I mean, if you could have talked to that little little seed and said, now I want to plant you here, and uh, for the first 150 years, you are not going to see any white people. If you see anybody, it's going to be a, uh, a, red, a red-skinned person. For the first 175 years, 
you are not going to hear the crack of a rifle. But eventually, there will be animals that take shelter under your branches. There will be birds and squirrels that build their nests in your, in your branches. And uh, eventually, there is going to be a city that grows up around you. And through all of these years, you are going to just continue to grow. I think on the historical marker, it just says that the circumference of the tree is about 17 feet. But since that time, it has expanded another six feet. So it continues to grow these 300 years later. I'm going to use that as an illustration for what we find in my text this morning. I think that the church... And I'm using the church in a generic institutional sense. I think that the church uh, is described uh, here in in, uh, Revelation chapter 22, the first five verses, which will serve as my text for this morning. I think that we read about something that commenced during the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the amazing things uh, that I find about what we usually refer to as the church, and I think that there are three or four biblical instances of the word church being used to refer to all of God's people. But if the word church appears 80 times in the New Testament, and I didn't count, but if it appears 80 times, then 75 of those times is talking about a local congregation like Bullet Lick. God uh, has a people, and occasionally in the Bible, in the New Testament, it is called the church, so that Christ loved the church and gave himself for the church, and I think that's talking about all of the elect, all of the redeemed people. But the overwhelming majority of the time when God talks about the church, he's talking about a group of people who were meeting in a specific place in, in Corinth or in Philippi, or in uh, the, the seven churches that are addressed here in, uh, in the book of Revelation. I say that uh, because I hope at the end of this sermon you will have an increased appreciation for our church, an increased appreciation for this little church at the foot of the hill. If I were going to use a tree to represent the Bullet Lick Baptist Church, um, then I might uh, represent it as a tree that divides into uh, three major boughs. So there are three major boughs uh, on on this tree, and uh, one of the boughs has a smiley face carved into it, and one of the boughs has uh, some kind of silvery leaves on it, and another bough has some numbers uh, engraved on it. I wonder what that could represent. I wonder. Well, the smiley face is uh, one of the elders. It's Jim Bob Outland. The uh, the tree, the the bough that has kind of some silvery leaves on it. That's me with my silvery gray hair, and the one with the numbers. That is our third elder, Dean. And uh, and then you know if I said, uh, but off of these boughs, they branch off. Six or seven other branches. You say, oh, I'm on to you now. That's, that's the deacons. Yeah, that's right. 
And then um, there are fruits in various stages of growth. There are some little tiny fruits that are just green, and then there are some other fruits that are full and ripe. And you say, okay, in the church there are babies, and in the church there are older people. And we could go on and uh, add, <clears throat> add other features to the tree and that would just represent the tree of Bullet Lake Baptist Church. Well, in the book of Revelation, God primarily communicates the truths that he does communicate through pictures like the one that I just painted for you. So instead of saying the church is comprised of all of the elect, it will say the church is a bride. And then there are certain emotional connections that we make when we think of the church as being a bride. Oh, she's not an old wife. She's a bride. Young, pretty, excited, and beautiful. Not only is she a bride, but she also is described as a city. And uh, the city, oh, there are a lot of people there. And uh, beautiful things about this city. God manifests things about himself and manifests things about his people in, in the city that is the people of God. In the text of Scripture this morning, we see that this is a city, but there is a really strong emphasis that it is a city with a garden. And that's not just a haphazardly, uh, haphazardly chosen metaphor. The state of the people of God under Jesus Christ is described as a garden in this last chapter of the Bible because the Bible starts off with a garden. And there are some wonderful things that were in that first garden, the Garden of Eden, that uh, were taken away, some things that were forbidden to humans. There was a curse that was put on humans in that first garden. And so in this last chapter of the Bible, we see that Jesus Christ has restored his people to the garden where there is a river, where there is access to the tree of life, where there is the most delightful feature of that original garden, the Garden of Eden, and that is that they had fellowship with God. The Bible says that God would come down and walk with them in the cool of the day, and they had fellowship with God. And then, of course, there was, before sin entered, a, a perfectly harmonious human race. It was just two people. It was just Adam and Eve but it was a perfectly harmonious human race. And we see all four of those things in my text this morning. You watch for them while I read. Revelation 22, we're looking for the river, we're looking for the tree of life, we're looking for the throne of God, and we're looking for the fellowship of the people of God. Here's what it says in Revelation 22.1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. 
The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. I dare say that you, like I, have read this passage of Scripture throughout most of our lives, thinking that it refers only to heaven. But I, as I began to try to explain to you last week, Heaven is commenced on earth when you come to know the Lord. Jesus says in John 17, 3, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And of course, that commences when you are born again. When you repent of your sin, then you come to know the Lord. You begin to see the face of the Lord. When you are born again then you begin to partake of the water of life. When you are born again, then you begin to eat from the tree of life. And uh, so just as I said 300 years ago, you could have taken that little tiny seed of a sassafras tree and said, here is what you are destined to become. All you need is the nourishment of sunshine and rain and the soil and God's blessing And you're going to grow into the biggest sassafras tree on earth. What I'm saying is that this is a passage of scripture that doesn't just describe something that is waiting for us way off in the future in heaven. This is describing something that in seed was planted in the earth during the ministry of Jesus. And in some ways before that, but we'll just say during the ministry of Jesus and with the the sending of the Holy Spirit, there was a seed planted that has been growing ever since. And so it will get bigger and bigger, and I think the ultimate fulfillment for what we read here in 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 Revelation 22 is going to be in heaven, but right now the tree is growing. The tree has been planted. It's it's not still just a little seed in the soil in Palestine. It is a seed that continues to grow. Jesus himself expressed the marvel of such a small thing becoming such a large thing when he used the example of a mustard seed, which he said is the smallest of seeds. When I was a boy, uh, girls would sometimes wear necklaces that had what looked like a little crystal marble at the end, and in the middle of that crystal marble, there was a mustard seed. But because of the, uh, the magnifying effect of the marble, the, the mustard seed looked a little bit bigger. But uh, I see a couple of you nodding your heads that you remember those little, those little necklaces. Uh, but it's such a tiny, tiny seed. Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which though it is the smallest of seeds, when it grows into a full-grown herb, it's big enough for the birds of the air to perch on and nest in. And that's the way the kingdom of God is. And he used another illustration 
the illustration of yeast working its way through a lump of dough. Now, surely you ladies and several of you men have made yeasted breads. You take just a a little tablespoon of yeast, or if you use a little packet of that Fleshman's dry yeast, and you mix that in with a fairly good-sized piece of dough, leave it alone, leave it in a warm place, And pretty soon, that little bit of dough doubles in size. Usually when it's doubled in size, that's when it's time to do something else. What made made all that dough rise? How did it get all filled up with those bubbles like that? It got filled up with bubbles because that yeast works its way through that lump of dough until the whole lump of dough is affected by the yeast. And Jesus says... That's the way the kingdom of God is. It may start with just a little package of Fleshman's yeast, but it works its way through the dough. And I think that's what we have in this passage of Scripture. We have something that is described in seed form, and then it grows and it grows until finally it reaches its ultimate fulfillment in heaven. Let's look at these four elements, these three or four elements that are described here. In uh, the people of God, if you want to call it the church of God, you can call it the kingdom of God. Uh, But do keep in mind that this is not just a big thing that's out there. This is a little thing that we have a privilege of being a part of. So I'll try to remind you on how these things are manifested even in our own congregation. And the first thing that we see is the river of the water of life. So the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Jesus, uh, during his ministry, at least two times, referred to his work as uh, being the work of like a river. So, for example, when he met with the woman at the well, you can read about this in John chapter 4, Jesus says to the woman, whoever drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst Indeed, the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then John explains, by this he meant the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive, for up to this time the Holy Spirit had not yet been given. And so we don't have to search around. The river of life represents at least, at least, the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is at work in our little church. The Holy Spirit is at work in His people. Nobody ever gets saved apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Our lives, our physical lives, are dependent upon a supply of fresh water, such as would be found in a river. And, uh, and uh, here we have, in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a river that is the water of life. It's not a lake. It's not an ocean. It is a river that is ever flowing. It's a river that is always new. And it is a river of, it is the river of the water of life. A second time that Jesus uh, referred to water of life is uh, on the last and greatest day of the feast, uh, this particular feast, they, were, they would bring out a bunch of water, and, uh, and Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. 
And so we've seen that the water of life refers to the Holy Spirit, but it also refers to the the life-giving, death-destroying, health-sustaining effects of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Just like we cannot survive without water in our physical bodies, we will have no life spiritually unless we drink the Lord Jesus Christ and the water of life that he has. There's a uh, scripture song that has been popular for several years. I haven't heard it recently, but uh, you'll recall, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. That's Psalm 42, but if you continue to read that psalm, uh, you'll see that the picture there is not an idyllic, peaceful scene of a deer quietly drinking from a mirrored pool. Now, if you read the whole psalm, what you're more likely to think of, if you're a hunter is that when you wound a deer and she is bleeding out or he is bleeding out, when you're bleeding to death, you get really thirsty. And so often a deer that is bleeding out will go to water. Just got to have that water. Psalm 42 is the same psalm that says, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why so disquieted within me? Hope in the Lord. I'm like a wounded deer. I... I don't know what's going on. And half the time when a deer gets shot, he doesn't know what's hit him. And uh, I don't know what's going on in my life, but I know that I need you. And as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul thirsts for you, O God. So throughout the scripture and in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, water is presented as something that is necessary for true life, something that will preserve you from death. When I was a little boy, my grandfather worked at a place where uh, he would sometimes, oh, he emptied the trash. He was a janitor. And uh, when he emptied the trash at the place where he was working, there were several textbooks, some of them reading books. And so he rescued some of them from the trash and uh, they ended up at my house, and I always loved reading books. When I was uh, in grade school and we would get our reading books on the first day of class, I would sometimes just read the whole reading book all the way through, just loved the reading books. So I loved this reading book, and in this reading book, which I suppose was for maybe third graders, there was a picture of a, a pool in the woods, and this pool in the woods was clear, And you could see fish swimming in this pool. And there was a turtle. And there were frogs. And uh, that that picture was impressed on my mind. Oh, I'd love to see a pool like that. So full of life. So clear. And, well, metaphorically, that's what we have access to. In the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have access to a river That is the water of life. And then notice the next thing that it says about this river. It's clear as crystal. Now we don't have very many streams around this part of the country that are clear as crystal. But if you've traveled in the west. Or if you've traveled in the northeast. 
Or even if you've been to the Smoky Mountains, then you probably have seen a stream that is clear as crystal. And how inviting that is. I remember when I was traveling in California, I was traveling by myself and I was walking on a, on a two-lane road and it was, it was cold. It was in July, but it was cold. And I looked over the hill, and there was this crashing, clear stream that would occasionally settle down into pools of water. And I thought, I am going to get in that water. And so I got down the bank and got down there, and the water must have been 12 or 15 feet deep. But you could see the bottom just like it was two inches deep. It was just so inviting and uh, so so crystal clear. And here in the church, we have <clears throat> water that is pure. I, I'm sure that I drank from that stream. I know that as I was traveling around the country, I drank out of several rivers and streams in places, uh, places I probably wouldn't drink out of today, but the Lord uh, protected me in those days. And as far as I know, I never got any kind of bad waterborne diseases. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's some water... I'm not going to drink out of that water if, unless I'm really, really thirsty. I'm not going to drink that water, but these clear crystal streams. Well, that's the kind of stream that is described as being in the people of God. It's a water of life, and it's clear as crystal. And no wonder it's clear as crystal. Look where it comes from. It flows from the throne of God. So a few days ago, I got real thirsty when I was out in, out in the woods and never had anything to drink. And uh, Lorenzo, you know this place. I was right by a spring that comes out of the hill, and I thought, well, I just lay right down here on my belly and suck water out of this stream. It comes from a pure source. I mean, if it comes out from under the ground, then you're pretty sure that it's a safe place to drink. Well, you can be sure that this is a safe water to drink because... It comes from the throne of God and of the Lamb. I like how those two things are put together. It's not just the throne of God, but it is the throne of God and of the Lamb because they are in agreement and they are reigning together. And from the reign of God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, there comes forth a clear as crystal life-giving river And it's available to whoever is thirsty right now. The scripture song that we are learning is from this chapter. And in verse 22, and in chapter 22 and verse 17, you can read it. It says, the spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So are you, are you thirsty? Do you feel like nothing in this world is able to satisfy you? Well, then God has been good to you because there are a lot of people who are satisfied with the things that this world gives. Uh, There's a song that some of you will know that has the stanza, So my brother, if the things this world gave you leaves thirsting, that won't pass away. Then come to Jesus Christ and you can find in him uh, something to quench your thirst. That's Fill my cup, Lord, I lift it up, Lord. Come and quench this thirsting of my soul. Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Fill my cup, 
Fill it up and make me whole. And so if you are, if you are dissatisfied with these things that the world gives you, look to the fountain. Look to the, the fountain of living waters that has been opened and made available in, in the truth that flows from the throne of God and is available in places like this, churches like this, where the Word of God is valued and the Word of God is taught. So there is a river in the church that I think will have its ultimate fullness in heaven, but that river is available right now. One more thing about uh, the river is that it's through the middle of the street of the city. In other words, you can get to it easily. It's not like you have to go to a faraway place, a holy city like Jerusalem or Mecca, but that it is through the middle of the street of the city. It is in your local church if your local church is a Bible-preaching church. Now let's turn our attention to something else. So in, in the original garden, there was a river. It split into four streams. But this is the river of life, and we have access to drink from it. Something else that was in the original garden, the Garden of Eden, was uh, the tree of life. But as we read in our scripture reading, uh, God said, well, they've eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're not going to let them eat from the tree of life. And so they were cut off from the tree of life. That may be another way of saying that they died spiritually, just as the Lord had threatened they would. In the day that you disobey me and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And so throughout the scriptures, we find the, uh, the spiritual condition of people who are away from God as being dead. You were dead in your trespasses and in your sins, the book of uh, Ephesians says. And uh, Romans chapter 6 says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so in several other places, uh, the Bible describes the spiritual condition of those who are not in fellowship with God as being a condition of death. Well, in this passage of Scripture, we have just prescribed what you need. You need to eat from the tree of life. Look at what it says in verse 2. On either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So in, in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, access to life is once again offered. And it's with the tree of life, which... I think symbolizes the, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, the new covenant through his blood. And so, uh, 12 kinds of fruit, something for every kind of, uh, every kind of sickness that any one of the 12 tribes of Israel might have or any one of the 12 apostles might have, represented the Old Testament and the New Testament, you can have access to the tree of life through Jesus Christ. This, uh, it's yielded each month, and so it's always accessible. I think this is the same idea that is portrayed by the city going through, the, the river going through the middle of the street of the city. Uh, it's, it's not like you have to wait until the year of Jubilee before you can eat this fruit. No, it's always, it is always bearing its fruit. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. This is one of the portions of this passage that makes me think it is describing something that is going on right now. Uh, 
Because in eternity, you know, there will be no need for the healing of the nations. But there is now. Nations are at war with one another. There are black people who don't like white people and white people who don't like black people and, and uh, brown people who are not at odds with, uh, who, who are at odds with, with people of other skin colors and nations fighting against nations. But here is a tree where if you eat from the tree, then all of those differences that you have with people who are from different nations and people who have different colors of skin become relatively insignificant. These, this tree is for the healing of the nations. One thing that happened in the Garden of Eden was that when, when the humans sinned, there was a curse that came down. So Adam was cursed that uh, the ground would... Of course, the first curse was that they would die. They would surely die. And then the ground would be cursed. Eve would be cursed in her childbearing. And then throughout the Old Testament, we just read curse after curse after curse. Uh, A woman is not allowed to uh, go to the meeting place of the people of God for so many days after she's had a baby. If there is someone who has uh, certain kinds of physical deformities, he cannot enter into the congregation of the people of God. If someone has leprosy, he's under a curse. He has to stay away from the people of God. Well, in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, people of all kinds of spiritual sicknesses can come and be blessed. Here is a place where the curse is lifted. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. That's one of the reasons why there's nothing cursed anymore. Because cursed things cannot be in the presence of God. Now this is the second time that we've seen the throne of God and of the Lamb. That phrase. They are together. God uh, has made a way of access to himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. Through the Lamb. And he's described as the Lamb. Because he is a lamb who was slain and is now raised and is reigning in heaven. And so I think one of the implications of this is that God primarily does his work through local churches. So I was glad to hear Jimmy Winfrey telling us and reminding us of what, what we, we surely already know is that the most primarily the work of God is not done through parachurch organizations. It's done through local churches. Certainly, the effective ministry of discipleship takes place through local churches. The conversion, most people are saved through preaching at local churches. Thank God for radio ministries, thank God for television ministries and print ministries and so on. But most people are saved through preaching that takes place in local churches. And uh, most growth, uh, substantial growth, takes place through the ministry of the local church. God asserts his authority and exercises his reign in the local church. The throne of God and of the Lamb are in it. And the result is his servants worship him. And of course, this is one of the things that unites us together in spite of all of our differences that 
that we may have. They become relatively insignificant as we turn our eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. And speaking of face, we see the face of God in the way that He manifests Himself in the church. Look at verse 4. They will see His face. Now when you... You know, of course, the face is the most expressive part of a, of a person. You want to know if they're pleased or displeased? You can't always tell by looking at their hand. But if you look at their face, that expresses the heart of the person. And so when it says that we see God's face, it means, first of all, that God has turned His face to us. Have you ever been friends with someone or maybe your spouse when he or she is angry with you won't look at you so you know your spouse comes downstairs or walks into the room and when everything's okay they they look at you speak charmingly walk over maybe give you a little kiss but when things are not right They won't look at you. The face is turned away. Well, when God is displeased with you, He turns His face away from you. But when God is pleased with you, He turns His face toward you. And so here in, in this city, the servants of God see his face because he's looking at us, not disapprovingly. He's looking at us with pleasure and with delight. I was recently in a church service, not here. I was recently in a church service where there was a young mother who had a baby that looked like he was about 18 months old. And that mother could not take her eyes off of that child. I mean, it was positively distracting. Throughout the, uh, the song service, she was singing to that child. She was bouncing that child and looking at that child and smiling at that child and just always looking at that child. And while it was a little distracting, it also was, uh, <clears throat> it also was warm and cheerful to think, That mother is crazy about that baby. That mother cannot take her eyes off of that baby. And we all have experienced things like that. Those of us who have loved little children, just look at that little baby's face and just keep drinking it in and looking at that baby's face. And, you know, you take your eyes off and you look at her perfect little hands and her perfect little toes, but then you just go back to that face. <clears throat> when we lived in Kansas City, we had a, uh, we had a swing that was attached to a, a limb high in a walnut tree. And Grace Ann, who's now 23, was about three years old uh, when we moved from Kansas City. And uh, so she was just a little bitty thing, but she had, she had blonde curly hair that almost reached all the way down to her waist. And I'd take her down there and put her on that swing and, of course, you stand behind a child to push them when they swing. And so as the wind would hit her face, all of those curls would come flying back. And then 
as the wind would come the other direction, it would all cover her face. And I thought, well, this, this is all fun, but I want to see her. And so after I'd pushed her a little bit, then I turned around to the front. And uh, as she's going away from me, then all of those curls in her face. But then when the wind hits, then there comes that beautiful little cherubic face. Oh, I just couldn't get enough of seeing that beautiful face of that child that I loved. Well, you've had a similar experience. The The greatest delight of heaven is that you get to see God's face. Now, I know that God doesn't have a body like man. Jesus does. And you'll get to see Jesus' face. But to see the face of God is, a, is a, an experience analogous to that delight that you feel when you look into that face of someone that you just love so much. And those who are in heaven, and even those who are in the church now, get to see the face of God in a way that it is not visible anywhere else. The fact that uh, they are very close to God is further emphasized by the fact that his name will be on their foreheads. Now, the priests of the Old Testament uh, would wear a little headband, and they had a little gold, a little gold uh, thing on their head that said, Holiness to the Lord. But here... The saints who know the Lord don't even have the little gold headband. It has been imprinted on our foreheads. It is the way that we think about God. It has influenced the way that we think about everything. His name is now on our foreheads. Well, let's uh, wrap this up. In verse 5 it says, And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Uh, It probably is describing the way that it's going to be in heaven when this is fulfilled ultimately. But even now, Jesus is the light of the world. And whoever follows him will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And uh, Jesus is the one who illumines our reality. He is the one who illumines our world, and we don't really need all the input from worldly philosophies and worldly wisdoms except insofar as they agree with the Lord Jesus Christ. So we don't need the light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. As I was uh, thinking through this passage of scripture, there was a line from a pop song that came into my mind. I know it from the Carpenters. I think it was written by Leon Russell. But uh, it's, uh, the line is, I know your vision of me is what I hope to be. I've treated you unkindly, but darling, can't you see? Uh, so if you, if you remember the Carpenters, that's uh, a song for you. But that line, I know your vision of me is what I hope to be. It's the same kind of idea that people say, I, I, want to, I want to live up to be the kind of man that my dog thinks I am. And uh, in this passage that describes something that has already commenced, something that is already happening in local churches, I think of the line from that song, I know, Lord, I know your vision of me is what I hope to be. 
this is a this is an a picture of the church that I hope to that we grow up to be like and we can and so there's room for conviction here but there's also room for encouragement that when the Lord sees us his church his people he shows us his face he gives us his water of life he gives us the trees he gives us the leaves of the of the tree of life and it is a it is a good place i hope that you'll hope that you'll think of that when when you wake up on a sunday morning and uh, the thought goes through your mind i just don't know if i feel like going to church today just to think this is this is something that the lord really loves this is a place where the lord reigns and what happens at church flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb. This is, this is the way that the Lord primarily reigns in the hearts of men is through His local churches. Well, one of the benefits of being part of a local church is that we get to observe the Lord's Supper together. And so I'll ask those who are going to help serve to come at this time. This, as they're coming, let me remind you that this is a meal that is for people who are